Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to all our listeners. This is the Business Day Spotlight, your destination for African business made simple. My name is Mbidiwa Gawaza, and for today, uh, usually on a Friday, we get into uh, the hard economics of the week, and it's no different this week, but we are sort of uh, taking a slightly different uh, point of view, looking at a branch of the economy uh, that has a lot of sway um, into what actually happens, you know, in the world of investments and markets and all of that and that is uh, political leadership that is governance um, in the country and uh, there's a lot going on at the moment um, especially when you just uh, look at what's uh, going on uh, this week uh, uh, former president Jacob Zuma's refusal to attend uh, the Zondo Commission together with um, what's been happening with some of the top political figures uh, such as Ace Magashule of uh, uh, the ANC and we're just here to talk about about what the po- what the possible economic implications might be, uh, but more importantly, uh, where where does governance governance lend itself uh, when it comes to the direction uh, that a country takes? And to help us to unpack these issues, we are joined uh, by Professor Lawrence Hamilton, uh, who is. Uh, a specialist. He is a professor uh, of political studies at uh, Wits University, and he's also the SAUK Sochi uh, Bilateral Research Chair in Political Theory, and that's between Wits University and Cambridge. So, Prof, uh, good morning to you. Good morning, Mudiwe. Uh, many thanks for the invitation, and as you said, good morning, good day, good evening to all the listeners. I think a, a good place for us to start is getting into, uh, I guess, one of the things that people uh, tend to be very wary about in South Africa. Um, we can dress it up in many nice terms, but um, I guess corruption is usually a, a, a nice way to sort of uh, frame um, a lot of the underhanded dealings and some of the, you know, bitter tastes that are left in people's mouths when you hear about uh, what's actually going on with some of the state funds. So when it comes to corruption, how does that, um, I guess, lend itself to um, either hurting the common man on the street or just hurting our economy as a whole? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, at a very simple and, and obvious level, at a starting point, um, you're absolutely right, of course. The rhetoric and the, the discourse around corruption is is particularly vocal in a place like South Africa. I mean, I work, as you've just said, between two countries, the UK and South Africa. And ever since the Zuma era, but also before it, uh, there's there's... You know, it's very, very marked when you spend time in South Africa how significant the corruption discourse is. But the other thing to point out is um, that the reason that we are seeing so much of it right now um, is not necessarily because there is an increase in corruption in the last while. What we may be seeing is the consequence of a change of regime, a change of faction in power in the ANC, and the fact that that faction is slowly getting the state um, agencies to carry out the jobs they're supposed to carry out as regards corruption. And so we're starting to slowly see the effects of that. And these things do take time. I mean, obviously, everyday citizens 
expect people to be thrown in jail, you know, overnight. But they do take a hell of a lot of time. Maybe, I mean, there's no, I'm not trying to let the ANC off the hook in any sense. But um, from my perspective, as someone who sees this in the long durée and sees it in comparative perspective compared to places like America and the UK and Brazil and India, actually these events that you've just spoken about, Zuma before Zondo Commission, Zuma potentially being arrested, Ace Magashule in court today, these are major political events. And they are as a consequence of a hell of a lot of um, activity behind the scenes. Mainly uh, the state agencies actually carrying out their basic functions, but also political activity to ensure that these state agencies do carry out these functions. Just to come to your question, obviously, if, and this doesn't just apply to state officials, it applies to private businesses and private corporations, uh, people like the Guptas, and I'm, and as I'm sure we'll find out, very many more. Uh, if they're involved in funneling public monies, monies that come from taxpayers and that are supposed to be providing goods and services to citizens of South Africa, if those monies are being funneled away into private bank accounts here and abroad, then they're going to have very serious effects on the capacity for the state to deliver, uh, the state to provide the services it's, it's, it's not only supposed to provide in some sense, but has also promised that it would provide, right? Uh, so, yeah, it has, a, it, has a, it has a very significant effect in that, in, in the basic capability of the state in sheer financial terms. Uh, the state is a, a huge player in our economy. It is the most significant uh, agent in the South African economy. And if, if it cannot, uh, if it is losing, you know, you know, if money is leaking from holes everywhere, then how can that single most important agent be acting in a responsible and in an effective way? And, you know, one of the things that uh, I like that you said, you said you look at some of these things, you know, com comparatively, and you do work between uh, two countries. So with that sort of, um, you know, insight, um, how would you say, I, I don't know, are there, are there measures of to say that this country is more corrupt than another? Um, because, you know, I think South Africans might want to know within the broader context, you know, are we that bad? You know, when one uh, sort of compares um, governance in South Africa, you know, to other parts of the world. So, yes, I mean, there is little doubt that uh, the corruption index places us middle to low middle in that regard. So there are very many countries that are way better than us, but there are also very many that are way worse than us. Um, so like other middle income countries, Turkey, etc. We, we 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 battle with these kind of problems, but I think that what's what's more interesting than the exact position we may sit in as regards that corruption index, what's more important is what's happened to us since the beginning of the Zuma era. So there is little doubt that Mbeki was running at a tighter ship in this regard, and that as soon as Zuma came into power we, in hindsight, can now say 
that, uh, you know, all of the things that we know about this term state capture, the processes of various agencies of the state being bought off for sectional interests, i.e. Zuma and his acolytes' interests, rather than serving the public good in some sense, whatever that public good may be, um, yes, most definitely, uh, we have seen a very, very sharp uh, increase in corruption uh, since the beginning of that era. And we're now in the process of cleaning it up. So, uh, but, but to give you another side of that story, you know, places that may not be very um, helpful places to compare ourselves to, but places like Brazil uh, are easily as corrupt as South Africa, if not worse so. Um, and uh, another thing to compare ourselves to is our own history, right? So we in contemporary South Africa, in post-apartheid South Africa, have become very obsessed with corruption, and rightly so, as I say, particularly since the start of the Zuma era. Um, but the apartheid state was an extremely corrupt state, and particularly in its later years, it was uh, outlandishly corrupt. Uh, so uh, this this notion, this common notion that, that uh, post-1994 South Africa disappeared down a hole of corruption is just a, a completely incorrect uh, uh, representation of the facts on the ground. Actually, Prof, uh, you know, as you're talking, I'm listening to what you're saying and especially what you just said where um, talking about uh, corruption in the apartheid, in the apartheid era and then you have independence in 1994 and then we're now so focused on what's going on. Would it be a stretch to say that uh, perhaps part of the issue is the fact that um, as much as there's been work, as there's been a lot of work um, to write some of the, you know, branches of the state, uh, the judiciary, the government, you know, all of those different branches of the government, that in essence, um, it's still inherently the same system, right? That um, the system of governance um, and, you know, I would also venture to say that in a lot of African countries, right, the system of governance has been inherited, you know, from what was happening before um, independence. So you sort of swap out the players, but the game is still the same. And the game before independence was inherently corrupt because it was systematically designed to benefit a few. So... You know, would it be a stretch to say, why are we even surprised that there's corruption? Yes, I mean, I think we need to dis distinguish two things here. And this is quite, it's a really helpful question because it allows me to bring in a distinction that is not, not found in public discourse at all. And that is a distinction between, say, corruption of particular officials, uh, even corruption of, amongst, you know, networks of officials, um, and networks of officials connected to networks of business people, etc. Uh, that kind of corruption versus what you might call systemic corruption. Okay, so that's that's the first thing to keep in mind that there is a distinction, and that we do come from a history of systemic corruption. I mean, for to take just a few examples, a lot of our SOEs, our parasitals, whatever you want to call them, are in fact creations of the apartheid state. And their proximity to government and the 
seeming unwillingness of the ANC government to, to clean them up, to sell parts of them or all of them, actually harks back to an, an apartheid-era attitude and policy to these state-owned ent- enterprises. Um, even places like India, for example, you don't even have to go to the States or, or the UK or whatever, but even places like India have a long time ago sold off, if not all, large parts of their, of their state-owned enterprises. So there's no reason for our state to be involved to such an extent in things like telecom, SAA, um, even it's even got stake in, in Vodacom. I mean, these are these are, are ought to be mostly privately run entities that um, that generate, as a consequence, degrees of efficiency that unfortunately government cannot provide. Uh, government can provide degrees of efficiency and provision that the market can't provide, for example, around transport. So one of the things that the ANC could and should have done, for example, is to take on the public good of how we overcome the legacies of apartheid, especially urban geographies and ways of moving people around. Um, The taxi industry, Prasa, all of those things that come together to move people around big cities to get to work and back. That is an instance of where the state, um, I mean, Prasa is a, frankly another disaster uh, and, and it may get worse, but that is an area that the state could have stepped further into to regulate and control and to make more efficient. So some of the decisions have been, you know, so I'm not talking about simply a lack of decision-making and judgment and movement over certain issues to get out, as it were. I'm also saying that there may be certain issues that the state um, ought to have got further involved in. So I'm not giving you a a free market argument here. I'm giving you an argument about what sorts of public goods the the market cannot respond to properly. And in those sorts of public goods, the state needs to step in and either own to a certain extent or at least regulate. Um, And just to come to your your final point, um, you know, we, our attention is drawn by the media uh, and by uh, everyday events. When we see Inkandla and the MK, Mkontuwe Sizwa Veterans Association outside Inkandla uh, defending Zuma, and when we see Ace Magashule today uh, going into court for you know, a multi million rand uh, case around asbestos. These obviously grab the, the headlines. But for me, as a political theorist and a political scientist, really what enables these kinds of actions is a macro-political structure that we only in part heritage from apartheid, okay? So what we did is that we had a, a, a very important and very fraught and potentially really dangerous transition um, that was, of course, more than dangerous for a lot of people. Many people lost their lives. But um, in that transition, there were a couple of decisions made, especially around proportional representation, 
and around our voting uh, procedures that have led to a macro political arena in which we do not, as everyday citizens, we do not select our own representatives from our own geographical constituencies and vote them in or vote them out of parliament. What we do is we vote parties into or out of parliament. Now, what does that do? That means that the party list, where you are on the party list and how much percentage your party wins in the election process will determine whether you enter parliament or not. And so your master in that process is the party. It is not the people. Yeah. And under, under properly functioning democracy, your master as a representative, the, you're the agent of the people. What we have seen since we have changed this um, uh, system from a Westminster model, from a constituency-based model, of course, there are a whole lot of varieties we could have used. We could have used um, versions of both like they do in Germany. Um, what we did is we went for a very simple version, which is a PR version where we vote in parties, not individuals. And then parliament votes in the president. And of course, all of that gives the ANC, as things stand at least, a great deal of power. And so in a way, you can see the internal logic of corruption being one consequence of this, right? You can see that if everything comes down to the party, then of course, there's lots of wriggle room for people to uh, get involved with the party, make lots of money out of the party, and uh, for those a little bit less virtuous than others, uh, find people to corrupt very quickly. And, of course, the tender process is a, is a perfect example. <laughs> but my feeling is that, the, that we sit in, we, we generated a constitution at the high tide of what's called human rights liberal democracy that, that generated a set of macro-political arrangements that are not very good at giving citizens the power to hold their representatives accountable. Now, of course, citizens aren't the um, state agents to take people to court and to prosecute them. But what matters in politics, besides, of course, if you get involved in malfeasance and fraud, you may hopefully in a functioning uh, democracy be taken to court. What matters in politics is the competition for power, right? What matters, in, especially in democratic politics, is selling a vision to the people and asking them, is this, do you want us as your leaders? We don't get that yet. We get asked to choose which party do you want to lead you? There's not much emphasis on the individuals. There's not much emphasis on the vision. There's not much emphasis on uh, throughput. There's not much emphasis on accountability in general. And we can't say that person X who represents me and my fellow uh, members of this constituency can, at the end of a four or five or six year period, vote that particular individual out of position of power. Of course, parties are always 
going to be part of modern politics. But what has happened in the South African case is that the party, and of course we're talking about the ANC because the ANC is the is the main party, but this would be the case of the DA with the main party. This would be the case of the EFF with the main party. Um, you know, to sort of draw on what you're saying, there, there's a piece, you know, that I, that I wanted us to touch on before we come to the end of the discussion. And I think it lends itself to, you know, uh, what, where you seem to be going right now about, you know, who is actually in power. Because when it comes to policy making, then, all right, what is the incentive for decisions to be made in the public good? Right. Uh, if there's an entrenched, uh, I don't like using the words entrenched interest, but literally if there's an entrenched interest for you to sort of um, keep the status quo going, because the system can only change if parliament decides, OK, we're going to change. But why should the system change if um, as a majority or the person in power, you know that um, if the system changes, it takes away whatever you know bargaining power whatever you have you know so and also at the same time uh, there are also other issues of uh, if you think about what happens in the states when it comes to uh, policy making you know they call it lobbying but if you see if it's the same thing is seen happening in africa it's called corruption and brown envelopes politics and all of this stuff right so from uh, I guess policy making point of view as we round up prof like how do we I guess change because as far as I can see the most credible piece is the people <laughs> right like uh like who would actually have the incentive to change the things would be the people as opposed to um you know those that are either in power or have the potential to be in power Yes, unfortunately, we're in a bit of a vicious circle. Um, uh, two things. The first is we had a Fansal Slavit commission many years ago, and that was a commission drawn up to, to assess our macro-political arrangements or the way we elect officials to power, and thus the way we hold people accountable as regards policy formation and policy throughput, as you're talking about. Um, so... It's not inconceivable that those in those positions of power who want to keep the status quo might not have incentives brought onto them by the people to think about reorganizing their macro-political structure. The other thing is, of course, that South Africa is a place of of great um, and continual upheaval. So at the local level, Lots of people go on what are called, rather strangely, service delivery protests. Um, and the people that are the, the main um, targets for service delivery protests are often ward councillors. Seems to me ward co- being a ward councillor in this country is having the worst job on earth because you're the one that gets the, the, the wrath of the people weighed upon you when, in fact, you're mostly powerless. Um, your house gets burnt down, etc. So really, if the people want to change, they have to threaten some kind of revolutionary action. They don't have to necessarily take carry it out, but they have to come together in various formations and uh, ask for a different arrangement. But 
just to be clear, no democratic arrangement can change the fact that there will be the possibility for various forms of corruption. Mm-hmm. So I'm not suggesting that, that by bringing this back to kind of macro political questions that there is some perfect nirvana of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a macro political organization or, or constitutional setup that was resolved these issues. Corruption is endemic everywhere, frankly, as you just pointed out with regards to the United States. But um, we can lessen it and we can control it. And you're right, the, 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 the individuals that have the greatest interest in controlling it and changing it are the people. Unfortunately, in South Africa, of course, we have a whole, you know, we have such high levels of inequality, we have such high levels of poverty, that many of our people are simply not, they don't have the time, the energy, the political will, or the political understanding to take these matters forward. Um, And so, ironically enough, it comes back to certain kinds of virtuous elites, uh, maybe within the ANC or outside the ANC, to take on those sectional interests. And for me, what's going on right now in the ANC is an attempt to to do that. Now, it might fail, and there's going to be a lot of noise about it. You're going to hear the noise today outside the Bloemfontein High Court. But um, that that is mostly just noise. The proof is going to be in the pudding. The proof is going to be in whether these big corrupt networks are brought to book and whether the state can recoup some of these funds. And that's a a long time down the road, in my view. And it's that that South Africans should be watching, whether the Ramaphosa administration can succeed in that regard. And although people talk about how weak he is, my sense is that if he does show any degree of success, like real people in jail, real recouping of funds, you know, beyond uh, uh, dealing with the pandemic that we're dealing with now, then that will have very great consequences for our our political makeup and for the control of corruption going forward. And if it means the ANC splits, which has also been suggested, all well and good for political competition. So that's been us. Uh, we're talking to uh, Professor Lawrence Hamilton, who is uh, a political uh, studies professor at uh, Wits University and also SAUK Saatchi Bilateral Research Chair in Political Theory between uh, Wits and Cambridge, giving us some insight into um, how corruption lends itself um, to some of the you know tough economic uh, decisions uh, that we see. But more importantly, just talking about what governance looks like in South Africa, um, the system of governance and some of the holes in it um, where corruption has been able to, um, you know, perhaps use the word thrive. Um, and then he's just talking about the fact that, um, you know, one of the big issues is the fact that uh, people are the ones that have the greatest interest in making things better, but they have uh, structurally 
they have the least uh, amount of power or recourse when it comes to choosing who their direct leaders are and uh, voting them in and out of power, which would be uh, quite um, you know good balancing mechanism uh, when it comes to staving off um, some of the political interests and the way that they govern in uh, South Africa. So that's been it. Prof, thank you so much for being with us. That was wonderfully summed up, Mudiwe. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for the invitation. It's been great. This is Mudiwe's Take. A very fascinating discussion with... uh, Prof Hamilton around uh, the state of governance in South Africa. Uh, very important when you think about uh, the economic policies that need to be put in place um, to actually right-size the country because um, where, you know, how political interests are shaped sort of then shapes where the economy goes because there is that tension between um, political interest versus the, national, the, the greater national good, um, an issue that the Prof spent a long time talking about. But for me, it's the structural part uh, that's quite fascinating simply because I really think and feel um, that um, in Africa, you know, whether we're talking South Africa or other African countries that have similar pasts of, uh, you know, colonial times and then um, we're seeing massive amounts of corruption, um, is that there are conversations that need to be had about what it means uh, to govern in an African way. And the reason I say that is because uh, for a lot of people, it's simply been a swapping out of the players, it seems. That, um, you know, you swap out the players, people are on the field, they're playing hockey, you swap out the, you swap out the players. You know, it looks like a different game, but they are still playing hockey, essentially. All right. Yeah, you, we might take away, perhaps we might take away um, the hockey sticks and say that people should kick the ball and swap it out for a bigger rubber ball. And, uh, you know, the game now becomes soccer. But in essence, uh, people are still, you know, by and large doing about the same thing. Um, so I think complete workaround really needs to be, you know, thought of. Uh, but once again, that stumbles uh, because uh, of entrenched interests and what is the incentive, right? What is the incentive of changing the system when so many, um, so many interests are benefiting from the status quo? As much as we may talk about having this egalitarian state and um, all the good that can come out of the world, the truth of the matter is people like to, uh, people are eating. Uh, people are benefiting, people are prospering. Um, so the incentive structure to me, um, from an economist's point of view, seems like that's what needs to be tackled the most. Um, just going into, um, you know, how do we incentivize better behavior? Because um, at the moment, it seems to be a game of incentives. People want to make money. People want to eat. People want to chow, to use a colloquialism, right? How do we get people to chow, but um, the normal man on the street is still benefiting from the resources of the state? We look to see um, how all of these discussions continue and I hope that as time goes on that, uh, you know, we might find solutions uh, that will be more inclusive and that will see more of us prospering and chowing at the end of the day.
So that's been it for this edition of the Business Day Spotlight. Remember that you can find our latest podcasts under the Business Day Spotlight uh, podcast tab on Twitter, where hashtag BD Spotlight. And remember that you can review and subscribe for free on iono.fm, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, wherever you choose to get your pods casted. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producer is Paige Muller. I've been Mudio Gavaza of the Business Day and Financial Mail, and this has been another edition of the Business Day Spotlight, which is a multimedia live production. So for myself and the rest of the team, it is good evening, good afternoon, and good morning.